The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon text this morning is Philippians 1, verses 3 to 8. Philippians 1, verses 3 to 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. For those of you who are just joining us, we began our series in Philippians last week by looking at the first two verses, and we hope you'll join us as we continue the series as we come to discover the secret of Paul's joy and contentment. So would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, if you don't show up, we waste our time. And so we're asking that you would come in the power of your spirit and give us eyes to see and our hearts to behold your glory and majesty from your word. Because your word is inspired and written so that we might have life. So show us more of yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The verses we just read from Philippians 1, 3 to 8, we might ask, how can someone writing from prison have such joy-filled thanksgiving? How can Paul, who's chained to a Roman soldier, write with such effusive thanksgiving and joy? What's wrong with him? Or or we might think, I want to be more like him. This morning. What we just read is counterintuitive. It's contrary to common sense. Paul is in chains. He's been imprisoned. He's had little support from the churches. It says, he says that later that no one entered into partnership with me except you, Philippians, alone when I left Macedonia. And in 310, he says that he's sharing in Christ's sufferings, even being poured out as a drink offering. So I think in Paul's mind, he sees that his death is getting close as well. His situation is dreary and dire. And yet Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 to 8 is some of the most effusive, joy-filled, thankful writing that we have in the scriptures. And our question is, Why? Why is Paul so thankful? Why is Paul so full of love here in our passage? What is his secret? I imagine that many of us here this morning read a passage like this and say, I want to be more like Paul. I want to be more like that. I want to be more thankful, more joyful, more full of affection for others. 
Because we recognize that we're not that way. So often our joy is tied to our circumstances and our situation. Our joy rises and falls with the weather. And yet when Paul writes in chapter 2, do all things without grumbling, we feel the conviction of the Spirit because we know that it's difficult. We don't always do all things without grumbling. Well, if that's where we're at this morning, perhaps discouraged that we're not more like Paul, it's likely that we're in good company with the Philippians. I just want to talk maybe a little bit about where the Philippians are at, the the context for how they might have received this letter. I think the Philippians are discouraged for a number of reasons. They've heard about Paul's imprisonment. They heard that Epaphroditus was near death in delivering the gift to Paul, that they know about the disunity that's present within the church. In chapter 4, it talks about these two women that can't get along, and they themselves have been suffering for Jesus. So compounding reasons for why the Philippians themselves might be feeling discouragement, why they might be faltering or wavering in their faith. And so Paul's prayer of thanksgiving lands on the Philippians with such amazing encouragement. And Paul is encouraging this beloved church for what he sees God is doing in and through them. His thankfulness and his joy and his love for the Philippians is not tied to the situation and the circumstances around him, but he sees through those things and he sees what God is doing in the Philippians. He sees what God is doing in the present situation. And so what happens for us this morning is that God, Paul is modeling for us a God-oriented joy and love and thanksgiving. And he doesn't use flattery or falsehoods, but he calls out what he sees God is doing in him and in their lives as well. And so the question we want to ask this morning is, what do we see at work in the Philippians? What does Paul see at work in the Philippians that gives him such joy, such encouragement, such love for them? We see these specific evidences of grace that are causing him to burst forth with joy and thanksgiving. And I think we see three main things this morning. And we're going to look at the first. The first is this idea of gospel partnership in verses 3 to 5. So look with me at your Bible. Paul begins his prayer, thanksgiving, in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance for you always. In every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In these three verses, he answers for us three questions. Where's Paul's thanksgiving directed? How does he give thanks? And what is he thankful for? The first, Paul directs his thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving is not just a horizontal dynamic, a horizontal transaction, but Paul rightly directs his thanksgiving to God because he recognizes that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Like we talked about last week, everything for Paul is about Christ and his gospel, the centrality of Jesus. So even now, as Paul sits in prison and he thinks about the Philippians, he says, what's the first thing that comes to mind? 
It's not their financial gift. It's not what, what they've done for him, but it's what God is doing in and through them. Paul sees the Philippians and even his own situation with God's perspective. His thanksgiving is directed to God. He's not buttering them up with flattery before he makes a big ask of a financial gift. Or This isn't pop psychology. Just, just count your blessings regardless of the situation. But rather, he sees God at work. The, the second question, how does he give thanks? Well, he says in verse 4, Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. It's an awkward sentence, but it highlights a number of things. Every time Paul thinks about the Philippians, he's praying for them and thanking God for them. And it's not just for some of them, but it's for you all, making my prayer with joy. So this attitude of joy pervades Paul's letter. This is the first time it's called out, and he'll come back to this theme again and again. And so what's taking place in these early verses is that Paul is modeling the very thing he's going to call for throughout the letter for the Philippians. And it's likely because he heard the Philippians were struggling with joy themselves. So you see that? Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 2, 218. And we're going to look at a couple passages, so have the whole book kind of handy. 218, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's talking about being poured out as a drink offering. I'm going to celebrate that reality. You too should do the same thing. And then look at verses uh, Verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then look at verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So Paul is calling for the Philippians to celebrate what he sees God doing. See how God is at work in you, in me. In these situations that feel difficult, disunity, imprisonment, Epaphroditus nearly dying. How should we feel about all that? And Paul says, rejoice. God is at work even in the hard things. This is an amazing reality. And Paul's modeling that right now. He's saying, I'm in prison. And yet I'm rejoicing. I'm praying with joy every time I think about you. Part of Paul's secret to contentment is that he sees everything through the eyes of faith. His concern is for the advance of the gospel. He's not mainly thinking about his comfort or freedom, but of Christ's gospel. Now, the the third question we wanted to look at is, what is Paul thankful for? And here we see that first evidence of grace, this idea of gospel partnership. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This word partnership is the Greek word koinonia, which refers to fellowship and communion and close and intimate relationships. Paul uses this word several times in Philippians. So how did the Philippians partner with Paul in the gospel? I think there's a number of ways. The first is that the Philippians received the gospel themselves. They believed the gospel. That's what I think he means when he says, from the first day until now. When we came into Philippi and we preached Christ, you guys received him, believed him. And so that was the first day when you received Christ. And since then, you have been walking in this truth. And so Paul is celebrating that reality. And many of us know this from experience, don't we? 
that we have a special concern for those that we've mentored. Those that we shared the gospel with and they came to saving faith. Don't you have a special concern for those people? You, you pray for them regularly. You think about them and you say, oh, we lost touch. I wonder how they're doing. Because there's a special concern and love for those that we've had a chance to lead to faith or share the gospel with. And here Paul is saying, I- I'm so thankful f- for your partnership in the gospel. How you received the gospel, but then how they continue to walk in truth as well. The second thing Paul highlights in this idea of partnership in the gospel is not just that they received and believed, but that they're seeking to advance the gospel. The Philippians didn't just believe, but they joined the mission to advance the gospel. When Lydia came to faith and she was baptized along with her entire household, do you remember what she insisted upon doing before the Apostles left before Paul and his associates left. It's in Acts 16, verse 15. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the picture of a transformed life. She was insisting upon, like, won't let them leave. Like, no, you have to stay. I want to show you hospitality. You you can't leave until I show you some hospitality, until you sit in my home, until I serve you tea, until you eat some of my food. And we know of cultures like that. Our culture is not particularly like that. We say seven o'clock, time for you to leave. But there are other cultures where you've gone to their homes and they say, no, 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 you're from out of town. You're a believer. You must stay. We have have a team here at the North Campus that's visiting this Afghan family. And and they say every time we go, we have to stay three hours because they just insist upon showing us hospitality. And it's not just cultural hospitality here, but Lydia was showing the fruit of faith. She was saying, I want to advance the gospel. How can I do that? I want to help the ministers of the gospel advance. And so from the first day, the Philippians have not just shown hospitality, but they have supported the apostles, Paul and his associates, with this continuing work. They sent a gift time and again. Philippians 4 14 to 16 says this, that they supported Paul time again. It says this, Paul wrote, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. You were the church that stood by my side in the highs and the lows from the very beginning. And he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And this letter is in response to another gift. So the Philippians were constantly eager, ready to see the gospel go forth. And this highlights one of the principles of the gospel for us this morning. The gospel is not a Ponzi scheme where the people at the top craft some fake product and then everyone else pays money into it to enrich those at the top. No, no, no. It's the complete opposite, where the gospel is given freely, preached freely, at no cost, so that some might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, and and through no coercion, they say, I want others to receive that gospel freely, and they give of their resources so that the gospel might advance. 
This is the evidence of faith that's at work in the Philippians. And this is really amazing. The, the third way that they have partnered with the gospel, their, their partnership in the gospel, is that they are walking in the gospel. Third evidence is that they are living out the gospel. Paul will later in Philippians remind them of a number of things that he wants them to, to walk in. So actually, why don't you look with me at this, because it's important to see. In chapter 1, verse 27, this is an important verse in the entire letter, but he says to them, this is a command exhortation. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. So he's exhorting them to walk rightly. Now, look with me at verse 29 of chapter 1. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So he's telling them, walk in a manner worthy. You're going to suffer for Jesus. And then look with me at chapter 2, verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So walk in a manner worthy, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, what does he want them to know? What does he want them to do? Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So you, you begin to see the thrust of this letter. He wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He wants them to stand firm in this gospel. He wants them to suffer rightly for Jesus. Don't waver. And, and so I think the whole of what he's doing in this opening section is he's setting the stage for all that is going to follow. Because he needs them to know before they work out their salvation with fear and trembling, they need to know that it's God who works in them, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so this opening Thanksgiving is doing that work. He's saying, here are three things that God is doing, has already done. I see these evidences of grace, this fruit of faith in you, so that when these commands come later, they're not burdensome. It's saying, you're married now. Enjoy your marriage. You're a Christian now. Live that way. And so these opening verses are not just throwaway. They're not just flattery. He's setting them up by reminding them, see how God has gloriously been at work in you. You received the gospel from the first day. You're advancing the gospel and you are walking in the gospel. And that's what we want you to continue to do. For Paul, his joy is not determined by his settings. You know, this Roman soldier smells bad or my facilities are subpar or I'm not getting enough to eat. He, he's seeing through his immediate circumstances and saying, look how gloriously God is at work. And he does that later, doesn't he? He says, I really want you to know that my imprisonment is opportunity for the gospel to advance. Before we move on, I just want to pause here. As we think about our own circumstances and situations, are we known to complain and grumble? Are we mainly critical or are we mainly thankful? 
Are we seeing with the eyes of faith? Are we seeing what God is doing? When we watch the news, when we see the world around us, when we see uh, our, our neighbors or what's going on in the lives of our family and friends, do we mainly lament those realities or do we see how God is at work? I, I, I personally, as I study this text, I, I'm so convicted because I, I want to say I'm I always want to say I'm a naturally critical person, but I don't think that's the right way to talk about it. I I tend to be critical. I like to see things where I can fix it and make it better. And yet I want to be more like Paul. First thing, what is God doing and how can we praise him for what he's doing? Can you imagine an entire church that would think and live and talk this way? Before the criticism comes out of our mouth, we say, I'm so encouraged by what I see God doing in you. Another application is, are we partners with others in the advance of the gospel? There is this very distinct idea where the Philippians have partnered with Paul and Paul with the Philippians for the advance of the gospel. And I think that's one of the central themes throughout this, that he thanks them for this gospel partnership, and he wants us to have these same types of gospel partnerships. And so I've been pondering this as we transition to three churches. I've been marveling at the spirit of gospel partnership among this church family here at the North Campus. Do you know that your participation in worship and singing, and praying, and serving, and giving, and embodying, and living out the gospel is a partnership with us in it. Week after week, this church couldn't run without the hundreds of gospel partners that enable it to happen. And let me just highlight some of those. I am going way too slow, so I might just even save verses 6, 7, and 8 for next week. Uh, But I'm going to spend some time here because I think it's important for us to just see some of these things. How many of you were here in 2002 when we first started meeting at Northwestern? Put your hands up high. There's a bunch of us. So you know, and the rest of us don't, and I wasn't here, but there was a call that was made to say, we need people to leave the familiar facilities of the downtown campus so that you would go and be in temporary settings at Northwestern. Dan is going to be your leader, and you all need to go up there to make space so that other people can have a seat and have a place and have parking at the downtown campus. And and this is inconvenient. This is difficult. This is uncertain. And, And we all know how we love to be in our particular seats. And not only are you not in the same seat, you're not even in the same building. And and what did hundreds, I think it was almost 800 people, what did hundreds of you do? You said, let's go. Why? Why? Because the thing we care about here at this church, more than any other, is not my seat. It's not my parking. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the name and the fame of Jesus going all the way to the ends of the earth and to the neighborhoods. And so if we can make space for others to hear the preaching of Jesus, let's make space. That has been our heartbeat from the very beginning, from the foundation of this place. We used to say, sit close, park far. I forget what the other one was. 
talk quietly. I guess so. Um, we don't really do that one anymore. We like it when there's uh, a stir in here. But we used to say those things. And, and people did it because we knew late people like to sit in the back. We needed people to park far. People still park up at the John Coe lot now. So uh, you are partnering with us in the gospel. That's our heartbeat. Let's continue to make that our heartbeat as we transition to be an independent church, that the gospel of Jesus, its advance would be central to who we are. I have like six other examples. The last three years, we planted Emmaus Church in White Bear Lake and Living Hope Church in Maple Grove. And I know for many of us, some of our dearest friends went with those church plants. Some potential elder candidates were part of those church plants. We have dear, beloved partners in the gospel that we sent off. Why? So that the name of Jesus would spread. So that others would say, I don't know if I'd walk into a big place like this, but there's a church down the street from me. I just heard about it. Maybe I'll check that out. And, And there's only 50, 100, 120 people. So I think I might be able to get connected. In, in our campus outreach ministry, and many of us don't know this, but we have a dozen staff that raise their own support so that they can evangelize and disciple college students at Bethel and Northwestern. They could make a lot of money elsewhere, and yet they raise support. Many of us support these individuals so that the gospel would advance on college campuses. Every week, We require a small army, I might say large army, a large army that exceeds the size of most average churches here in America. We need a large army to serve our families and children, volunteers that hold babies, and parents can worship undistracted, ministry partners that teach the Bible and lead small groups for our children. I know families that host retreats in homes for our youth, worship team members that are homegrown from among our body. Our church has a long legacy of supporting and sending out global partners. And we've used the phrase, let's hold the ropes well. All of these are examples of how we are partnering together in the gospel for its advance. We have a South Campus today in Lakeville that would be a shining gospel outpost to the southern suburbs because of your giving because of your participation. And so what I want to do is praise God for the privilege of leading and serving such a people who love and value Jesus above all else. And all I want to say is let's throw more fuel on the fire, brothers and sisters. Let's be those who value gospel partnerships Together, we can do more so that the name of Christ would be greatly exalted, so that Jesus would be preached from pulpits, so that the name of Christ would be proclaimed by global partners to the farthest reaches of the earth. And and I know there are some of us who are sitting on the sidelines here this morning. You come sporadically. Maybe you just watch online and you've never been in the building. You're thinking about it. You haven't jumped in. And, And so every time we talk about ways to give, we're not just saying we want your money. What we want for you is the mutual joy of participating in this body, in small groups, and in giving, and in serving, and and in learning, and letting us come alongside you and discipling your children. This is what we want to see. And so Paul sees this beautiful picture of gospel partnership so that he gives thanks 
to God. I'm wrestling with whether to do seven, six, seven, and eight, or to save that for next week. Let, let me keep going, and, and we'll stop wherever we have a moment. I'm going to skip verse six, actually, and come back to that at the end. And I'm going to do verse seven and eight. Why don't you look there with me? Paul says, the next thing he sees, first he saw partnership in the gospel, and now he sees partakers of grace in verse seven, eight, 7 and 8. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, we see just this effusive warmth and love from Paul. He says, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. These two phrases suggest more than fuzzy feelings. This idea of hold you in my heart comes out in 2 Corinthians 7, 3, and he says it this way. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts. And then see what he says after that, to die together and to live together. So Paul, when he says, you're in my heart, it's not just, oh, I'm thinking about you, you know, a valentine, thinking of you. It's this idea of I'm ready to die for you to give my life for you, which is why he later says, my my desire is to part and be with Christ, but to remain is more necessary on your account. Therefore, I will remain. The Philippians weren't out of sight, out of mind for him. Paul is modeling the humble, loving attitude of those who care about Christ. And then he says, what he sees in them is that they are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of this gospel. Now, how are they partakers with Paul of grace? Well, I think it's a number of things. It's, yes, their financial gifts. It's also that they have been committed to his ministry since day one. We've talked about that. But it's also their shared suffering in their own situation. Look with me again at chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So you Philippians have given me gifts, have been with me since day one, and you yourselves are partakers of grace because you're leaning on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to endure suffering yourselves. And so Paul says, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Not just human love, not just because you've given a gift to me, but with the very love of Jesus. He calls God as his witness of this reality. So Paul sees in the Philippians both gospel partnership and participation in grace. Very similar ideas. Now I want to go back to verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. And he says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now remember what we said at the beginning? Paul is writing to a people that's probably a little bit discouraged. Epaphroditus has almost died bringing the gift. Paul's in prison. Looks like the gospel's being stopped. There's obstacles. There's disunity within the church so that everyone knows about it. And we ourselves are suffering. And Paul says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why should the Philippians be encouraged and not discouraged? Because what God has begun, he will bring 
to pass. He will complete that work. We just sang that song. He will hold me fast. It's that same idea here. God guarantees that he'll complete the work that he's already begun. And so this is what the Philippians really need to hear. Because later he's going to call them, work out your salvation. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Stand firm. Don't grumble. Don't depart. But remember, it's God who has begun this work in you. From day one, we saw the fruit of it. We see the fruit of it now. I'm a recipient of the fruit of faith, that you are partakers of grace. So when I call you later on in this letter to keep persevering, to be firm, to continue forward, remember, it's God who is doing this work. He's begun it and he will bring it to completion. It's the good work of God to cause you to believe and obey and to see these fruits of partnership. Paul knows that God is sanctifying the Philippians, washing them clean so that they would be ready for the day of Christ. We see that in his prayer, actually, immediately following. His intercessory prayer in verses 9 to 11, he wants them to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And Paul says, I'm praying that that's going to happen. I've seen God begin that work. I know he's going to bring it to completion. And yet you yourselves need to keep walking that out. And that's the tension of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Walk out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So imagine hearing this as one of the Philippians. You're, you're so discouraged you're so anxious about the future. Paul's in prison. Paphroditus nearly died. And you hear that Paul says, God's the general contractor overseeing all of the work of progressive sanctification. And, and I already see the finished product that will be present at the day of Christ. God's doing that work. It should land on these Philippians with such joy and confidence. God's going to do it. We're not trying to earn our salvation. We're not working with uncertainty. God's doing this work and bringing it to pass. And so this morning, I wonder how many of us are feeling discouraged, lamenting the slowness of our growth and sanctification. Perhaps you're discouraged at your sin patterns, at your habitual sins. Perhaps you're growing despondent and struggling with the same things again and again. Perhaps you're struggling to understand why your sanctification feels like it's so slow sometimes, or those around you, or maybe your faith is faltering. You doubt whether you're truly saved. You wrestle with anxiety and fear and feelings of inadequacy, and you're, you're just wondering, Am I going to make it? Is it just better to throw in the towel? I don't know if I can get through this next trial that just seems so overwhelming. It's like going through a whole bout of chemotherapy and then they say, actually, you need six more weeks of radiation and you're just thinking, my body is depleted. I don't think I can do it. And some of us are there spiritually this morning. We're just depleted. You're looking at the fall. You're looking at all the announcements. You're looking at everything ahead of you. And you're thinking, I'm just so depleted. I can barely hang on. 
I don't know if my faith is going to be sustained for the next week, much less year. And if that's you this morning, be encouraged that he who began a good work in you will, 100% guarantee, bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. If you have received the gospel, believed the gospel, then there's the fruit of faith there, and God will bring it to come to pass. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform This is what awaits us, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The very power that Jesus possesses right now, seated on his throne to cause every rival power to bow their knee, to confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. That very power will transform each and every single one of us. So even if our earthly bodies are wasting away, our spiritual bodies are being renewed day by day so that we would look more like Jesus. And God is the one who will cause this to come to pass. So so what does Paul see here in this passage? Paul sees... That the Philippians' partnership in the gospel is evidence and fruit of their faith. He sees that they are partakers of grace along with him. And that's the evidence and fruit of faith. And so he says, verse 6, I'm sure of this. I'm so convinced. I'm so, uh, I have just no doubts about this because God has begun a work in you. I've seen the evidence of that and he's going to bring it to completion. And so the, the idea we want to leave this morning, we want to leave with this morning, is that this Christian fellowship, this Christian partnership that we share is not built upon just grabbing coffee together, having the same interests, liking hunting or basketball or cross-stitching or whatever it may be, crafting. But our Christian fellowship, Christian partnership is built upon one central thing, Christ his gospel, and the advance of his gospel. And so give your life this morning to the things that will knit your hearts together with those that value those same things. And let's partner together to see this gospel go to the neighborhoods and to the nations. Don't lose sight of why we exist together as a church. And I would just say, one of the ways I, I, I want, I'm praying for us to partner together more is that we would just, in our gatherings, pray for the lost in our neighborhoods, our neighbors and friends and family members, and, and ask God to open new doors for gospel opportunities to read the Bible with unbelievers so that they w- would see the love and the beauty of Christ and be compelled in. Let's partner together in that. So are we cultivating the friendships that go beneath the surface and challenge one another to follow Christ and advance his mission? We walk out these commitments until the day of Christ Jesus draws near. We are Christ's disciples. Each and every single one of us 
have been sent on mission. So in the same way that in 2002, we said we need people who are willing to sacrifice their seats and their comfort to go so that the gospel would spread. In the same way as we transition churches, we're saying we we need people who are bought in on the vision of seeing Christ be made known to these northern suburbs and this north metro area so that Christ would be greatly exalted and that we would prioritize not our comfort, not our preferences, but that we would prioritize the cause of Christ and his gospel going forward. May we do so until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would be greatly exalted. We would see more of your work in us and those around us so that we might gain encouragement and joy and thanksgiving seeing your fingerprints on the lives of those around us and on our lives as well so that we would indeed walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 720- 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.